building and zoning regulations play an oversized role in the development of livable multifamily buildings and in reducing the embodied and operational carbon, that is, the amount of carbon emitted during the construction and use of the building. Conversely, regulations can also add requirements that increase embodied and operational carbon for no economic livability or life safety benefits. Today on the Livable Low Carbon City podcast, we'll be discussing unit access. Welcome to the Livable Low Carbon City podcast, the show about the interconnectedness of low carbon living, decarbonized buildings, and quality of life. I am your host, Michael Eliason, architect and founder of Large Lab. Unit access. In German, the Erschließung. In this inaugural episode of the Livable Low Carbon City podcast, we're going to talk about how accessing one's home in an urban multifamily building can affect quality of life. It doesn't sound like it would be very important, but I believe it is a pivotal aspect of designing and building more livable, family-friendly, and sustainable cities. Yes, folks, we're talking double-loaded corridors, single-loaded corridors, and point-access blocks. It's no secret that the predominant form of development in multifamily buildings in the U.S. is the double-loaded corridor. And if you follow me on Twitter, it is an approach that I very much loathe. The double-loaded corridor is due to a combination of factors. First, a fire code that prohibits the type of building layouts typical in most other countries. Second, cities opening up the zoning nozzle on narrow slivers of land, usually arterials and highways, with relatively low building heights that limit the number of stories. This results in buildings much thicker in plan than many other countries and that are colloquially known as breadloaf buildings, or as I recently learned from a colleague in New Zealand, sausage flats. Well, it turns out this isn't the standard form of development in other countries. So, what is a double-loaded corridor? In short, It is a building with a hallway or corridor running down the middle, connecting two or more sets of stairs and units flanking either side. In the US, uh, this is generally required when a building has more than four units per floor. So if you have eight, 10, 20 units, you're going to require a corridor and two sets of stairs uh, with a corridor connecting the stairs. The U.S. building codes do allow point access blocks. These are single stair buildings, uh, the predominant form of development in most of the rest of the world. Uh, However, it is very limited in scope. It is also largely illegal above three stories, except for a few locations, and we'll talk about that later. So what are some of the problems with the double-loaded corridor? I think the biggest one is that these units are single aspect units. That is, there's only daylight and or windows on one side of the building, unless you live on a corner and you have a corner aspect, you might have, you know, the ability to vent a little bit and have light on more than one side, Uh, but you don't have dual aspect. You don't have the ability to cross ventilate. You don't have light on multiple sides. If you live on the street side of the building, which is fairly common for generally half of the residents or more, because in the U.S., we tend to focus multifamily housing on loud, polluted, and dangerous arterials. And so if you happen to live on that side of the building, you have little respite from the noise and pollution. You can't have a bedroom on the quiet side of the building if your unit only faces west and you can only get you know really hot 
afternoon sun. It can be difficult to ventilate and keep the temperatures in your unit relatively comfortable. The inability to cross-ventilate is a significant issue, uh, especially in a warming world. Uh, as we saw with the heat dome, people in new apartments in the Pacific Northwest were sending me temperatures of their unit in a double-loaded corridor building, never dropping below 85 degrees. In a warming world with more significant heat waves, this becomes uh, an even more significant issue. And it's one in the U.S. that is further compounded by the lack of shading options compared to other countries. Uh, and this is an issue that we will talk about in a future episode. Another issue with the double-loaded corridor is that it results in primarily small units. It's relatively difficult to make family-sized units, two-bedroom, three-bedroom, even more fit. Uh, on a double-loaded corridor, and then those types of units are also competing with the the rent lost by foregoing three or four studio or one-bedroom apartments. So there's this weird there's this weird aspect of uh, hyper capitalism playing a role as well. It's not an incredibly efficient floor plate. If you're a parent living in a double-loaded corridor, this means that you could have up to 50 other units on your floor in the U.S., and so it becomes incredibly impersonal. It may make it more difficult for your children to meet friends, especially if it, you know, it's a building that is all mostly studios and one-bedroom units. The long, dark hallways of a double-loaded corridor also present uh, issues for people who are visually impaired, as well as people with onset symptoms of dementia. It turns out that long, boring, dark hallways with little articulation few focal points and many doors can make residents become confused and cause further issues. The requirement for multiple stairs also makes small lot development in the U.S. very difficult. So think about you know, your missing middle, you know, small-scale mid-rise buildings. These are largely infeasible. But if you go to any other country you know, in the EU right now, these small infill buildings in the downtown core or you know, even freestanding small-scale buildings outside of the downtown core are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And, you know, having the ability to build these, the building code that allows them, I think opens up a lot of opportunity. What are some of the benefits to the double loaded corridor? Well, there really aren't that many. It gets an incredibly high density of units. I guess this is great if you're a developer trying to build in a very difficult environment where regulations are extremely difficult compared to other countries. In Germany, double loaded corridors really are only common in student housing hotels and temporary housing, you know, I think in other countries as well, it's, it's not as common as it is here in the U.S. Okay, the next typology, the single loaded corridor. It is a typology that is more common globally than the double loaded corridor, although it is very rare in North America. This is an arrangement where units are accessed via an internal corridor set to the exterior or an exterior passageway uh, of each story, and all units are situated on one side of the building. In German, the exterior passageway of a double-loaded corridor is called a Laubengang, Lauben being translated uh, from the German word for arbors or trees. Typically, this condition results in narrower buildings with double aspect units. This means that it allows for cross-ventilation and daylight on multiple sides. Single-loaded corridor buildings are common in both social and luxury housing throughout Europe, uh, as well as Asia and South America. Though in the U.S., it tends to be associated with both affordable rentals and low-budget motels. Uh, in my opinion, single-loaded corridors provide the potential 
for a higher quality of life and more climate adaptive living than is presently possible with double loaded corridors. Okay, so some of the benefits. Units of single loaded corridors have daylight on both sides of the building. This is also beneficial for cross ventilation uh, and ensuring that units don't overheat uh, through much of the year. The exterior corridors can function as both noise barriers as well as providing solar protection for residents. In addition, exterior corridors can function as both noise barriers as well as providing solar protection for residents. Typically, uh, these would also have a wide diversity of unit sizes. So instead of being largely studios and one-bedroom homes, as you would find in the U.S., you get a nice range of units uh, ranging from studios to three, four, or even more bedrooms. In addition, it's also possible to place most or all of the bedrooms to the quieter side of the building, uh, so residents can live off of uh, loud, polluted streets. The corridors can also incorporate windows, um, allowing for daylight. There are also a number of hybrid configurations possible with a single-loaded corridor, such as wrapping it around a courtyard uh, for quiet interior. This is actually the approach uh, undertaken by the Vienna House in Vancouver, a really elegant, affordable housing project uh, by Public Architecture and Communication. There are, however, two downsides to the single-loaded corridor. The first, uh, floor plates tend to be thinner, uh, and so they're not as efficient as uh, double-loaded corridors or point-access blocks. Thus, given the large amount of floor area uh, to build on in U.S. projects, this really leaves a lot on the table, and so it becomes difficult to pencil compared to uh, the alternative of the double-loaded corridor. The second downside is some residents may balk at an exterior means of accessing their home. However, having visited, lived in, and designed projects that incorporate a single-loaded corridor, uh, I know that can actually be really quite pleasant. There are two projects that I think really represent uh, strong case studies of the single-loaded corridor. Uh, the first is the Eins-zu-Eins-designed Gleis 21, uh, which is a Baugruppe, that's German, which literally translates to building group, uh, an affordable housing project co-developed by the residents. It is located in Sonnenwendviertel, a Carlite eco-district uh, in Vienna. Gleis 21 is a building incorporating prefabricated wood exterior panels, hybrid wood concrete floor system, uh, it nearly hits passive house, mass timber, it's a really elegant project. Homes are accessed via an external single-loaded corridor uh, with stairs set to either end. The corridor bumps in and out uh, at the front doors, providing space for impromptu or planned gatherings, uh, as well as children to play. Being a Baugruppe, it also has wonderful amenities, including a massive bike room, uh, it even has a sauna, as well as a community room that the wider uh, community can actually utilize. The second is Orstad Gardens in Fredericksburg uh, by Technestun Lokal, uh, which is a rehab of a post-war office building with exterior passageway uh, that was converted to apartments in 2020. The project wrapped the exterior passageway in glass, providing for a more tempered means of accessing units. Uh, Denmark does have some pretty harsh winters. They also get a little bit of rain. Um, this also doubles as sound insulation, so it's quieter on the interior for residents. Finally, the passageways were enlarged near entries to allow for kind of semi-public outdoor space for dining, gardening, and so forth. Uh, this project shows that even with a really simple modification to an existing typology, uh, there could be quite profound effects uh, around quality of life for residents. So before the advent of the elevator, as well as the personal automobile, how cities developed was dramatically different than what we see in U.S. cities today. With the confluence of low-rise zoning and the introduction of the personal automobile in the first half of the 20th century, 
urban morphology shifted dramatically from what it had been. Prior to this point, cities developed in much more compact manner. Development was dense in both use and population and would typically have a very fine-grained nature with small-scale development. This was the norm for cities like Paris, Vienna, Amsterdam, and many others. Development sort of peaked around three to six stories with perhaps one or two stories of inhabited attic above that. Unlike post-sprawl cities of North America, this pattern was not limited to commercial streets and would stretch on for blocks in all directions. Many of these buildings would also incorporate street-level businesses with owners or renters living above. When I was working in Freiburg, Germany from 2003 to 2004, this is the exact sort of building that I lived in, and it was incredible. Uh, The third means of accessing homes is the point access block. Uh, Generally, this is a building that is three to 10 stories with one means of vertical access with units being accessed from one central stair In German, this is called the Punkthaus, the point house, or a Spanner. And this is a generally a multi-story building with two or more units centered around a central building core or stairway. Now I know what you're thinking. We need a second means of egress. In most countries, the second means of egress is actually by the fire brigade. In the U.S., point access block buildings are generally limited to three stories, and that can be with an exterior or interior uh, stair. In the U.S., we have limits to the number of units per floor, as well as travel distance to the stairway. The point access block has a number of benefits. For one, it is extremely compact. You can get floor ratios that are 95% effective with very little space required for circulation. This does a couple of things. One, it generally allows most, if not all, of the units to be dual aspect. That is, they have daylight on both sides and the ability to cross-ventilate. Similar to single-loaded corridors, this also means that bedrooms can be positioned on the quieter sides of the streets. Typically, you would find a diversity of unit sizes from, you know, studios to three bedrooms and sometimes even more. You know, when it comes to unit access, you know, think about the double loaded corridor again. Like I always go back to the shining. Uh, The point access block is kind of the inverse, right? It's the opposite of this kind of situation. You have a very compact uh, stairwell that the units are opening to. And really, there's only a couple of people in your direct vicinity within your front door that you're interacting with. It also means that the buildings themselves tend to be fairly small in nature and you know, so building regulations that, that sort of limit the number of homes per stairway, you know, for me, I think it fosters a better sense of community. There's more neighborliness. My neighbors can look out for one another. Definitely reduces kind of the vastness, the anonymity of large multifamily buildings that are prevalent in the U.S. Many countries also allow for point access block buildings to kind of be connected together in a series. And so this would be kind of one single stair building adjacent to another single stair building. In Seattle, we can do two of those per parcel. In other places, you can kind of just go as large as the parcel is. So the largest one that I've seen to date is actually Karl Markshof. It's a social housing in the city of Vienna. It's uh, some uh, three quarters of a kilometer long, and it is a series of connected point access blocks. I believe there are are 96 uh, altogether connected. And it has these really wonderful courtyard spaces, diversity of unit types and sizes, as well as, you know, ample amenity space that the city of Vienna has been really proficient at, uh, at supplying for its residents. Library, kindergarten, dental facilities, uh, and so forth. Point access blocks um, also allow for a fair amount of embodied carbon savings over other forms of unit access. This is in part due to the extreme efficiency of the floor plate. 
And also generally because they're just much more compact buildings. The reduced floor area alone reduces the embodied carbon. Uh, it also ensures that there's less construction waste as well. They tend to have a very good surface area to volume ratio, which is you know excellent for achieving something like passive house, which is an ultra low energy standard. What this also means is that because they're smaller, they're more compact, you're saving construction costs as well. You're not having to build as much volume for the same area and there's less floor area. Uh, so there are potential cost savings there, especially as you're able to get to a higher number of floors as they can get in other countries. It's better for maintenance, it's better for durability. There are also operational carbon savings. Another area where point access blocks are superior is reduced operational carbon. So that is the carbon emitted in the process of heating, cooling, and powering a building. Uh, you can have stairways that incorporate daylight. Uh, they can be exterior stairways as well. Daylight autonomy, reducing the need for powered lighting, as well as the ability to cross-ventilate, uh, lowering the need for cooling uh, and demand uh, for active cooling systems as well. I would say this is the thing about point access blocks that I'm most enamored with. Uh, it's not really something that we can do to the degree that you see in uh, countries like Germany or Austria, but that is the staircase is kind of like this third place, this gathering space. Uh, here in the U.S., stairways tend to be closed, dark. It's strictly a means of getting in and out of the building. It's not really meant as a means of running into uh, your neighbors or friends or coworkers or whatever. Uh, but if you look at a lot of point access blocks uh, in Europe, uh, you know, they sort of become this this kind of communal aspect uh, to the building. The doorways open directly into the stairway. There'll be a skylight above, so it is daylit. You know, there's this communicative aspect. It could be also an area where kids can kind of hang out and play. It kind of expands the connections, right, that you would you would have within your, your building. And if you've ever been in a building like this, I think you can kind of get a sense of how different, you know, having that daylight uh, and ventilation uh can really be. It's definitely more enticing to walk up and down. Uh, it allows residents to stay healthier. It means that there's less energy consumption because they're less likely to take the elevator. It also lets residents just kind of run into each other, check in on each other uh, as they leave or go throughout the day. I would really say that there are no drawbacks to point access blocks. Uh, the, the biggest one, there's two hurdles. One is there's this perception that they are less safe. Um, in discussions with fire engineers in Seattle, as well as my experience working and living in these kinds of buildings in Germany, uh, I, I really believe they're incredibly safe. The German approach to containment and egress, limiting floor areas, limiting travel distance, uh, and utilizing aerial rescues to kind of set the, the max height of a building is incredibly pragmatic. Uh, in the U.S., we also take things further. We have additions for fire sprinklers, uh, which are incredibly rare in, in, in other countries. One of the things that I really was kind of floored by in doing research for my point access block report was a quote by research fire protection engineer Richard Bukowski in a January 2009 National Institute of Standards and Technology technical note that stated, quote, for most of history, buildings were short enough that stairs provided for access were sufficient for rapid egress in the event of fire. Even in single-stair, mostly residential buildings, experience showed that this stair was sufficient for fire egress as long as the fire did not expose or block access to the stair, end quote. What this really says to me is that, you know, these buildings, which have been around for hundreds of years, you know, tend to be incredibly safe. And if you look at the fire death rates per million uh, across other countries, the U.S. tends to be much higher than countries like Switzerland, Austria, Italy, Spain, Germany, uh, or even France, right, where these kinds of buildings are, in fact, the norm. What I think that this points to is that, you know, 
safety concerns are relevant, uh, but I think in a lot of ways, those, those questions can also be uh, mitigated. Finally, I want to end on two benefits to point access blocks that I don't think really get enough uh, attention, uh, although I've been trying to change that for a while. As cities grow, there's recompaction, there's intensification of built-up neighborhoods. This can lead to gentrification and displacement uh, when existing buildings are demolished and replaced, and sometimes only incrementally increasing density, uh, if at all. It also means the loss of small business spaces, uh, existing networks, existing housing, uh, which is generally more affordable than newly constructed ones. Uh, It can also result in drastic changes in the physical and social composition of a neighborhood. And so I look at point access blocks and it's a means of kind of adding this resilience to how cities change, right? So cities can grow without changing substantially. And one of the ways that we can do this is recompacting built up areas. This is really common uh, in Europe. And if you think about like some of the penthouse projects in cities like Chicago or New York or Boston, right, where additional floors have been added to existing buildings, it's, it's kind of, it's that same thing. The difference is in Europe where you can generally do point access blocks from three to eight, 10 stories, If you're taking a six-story building, if you're adding a two-story addition on top of it, you're not having to add a second stair. You're just continuing the fire protection of the existing stairway, those additional two floors. What this really does is it allows for the city to change without changing substantially. It means that point access blocks could play kind of this pivotal role in allowing for intensification of built-up neighborhoods while reducing gentrification and displacement pressures, which, by the way, pairs really well with uh, prefabricated lightweight wood solutions. 2021 study by the Technical University of Graz showed there was space for nearly 40,000 new homes just within the existing roofscapes that required rehabilitation due to age in the coming years. In 2019, a Similar study by the Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany found that up to 1.5 million new homes could be added through vertical additions as well. So it's really being seen as an innovative way of providing housing in growing cities and helping deal with kind of the the housing bubble that all of these cities are kind of experiencing. I would also say that point access blocks are fairly superior when it comes to climate resilience as well. Again, we've already talked about the reduced embodied carbon the ability to cross-ventilate, dual aspect units allowing for you know daylight autonomy as well. They're more energy efficient. They have reduced requirements for heating and cooling due to their compactness and adaptive strategies than other buildings can have, uh, as well as the ability to add new homes on top of existing homes, right? There are significant reductions in carbon emissions that can be realized by adding new homes on top of existing ones rather than demolition or sprawl. And there's also this social resilience that I think can be found, right? You have a more community-oriented sort of building. It's smaller. People can look out for one another. You know, during the pandemic, we realized that, you know, these kinds of buildings were advantageous potentially from a public health standpoint as well. You know, reduced frequency of people using elevators, reduced uh, frequency and duration, you know, walking back and forth in corridors and lobbies and elevators over larger double-loaded corridor buildings where you could have several hundred residents sharing the same space. So what is holding back the adoption of point access blocks in the U.S.? Well, it's really an issue of building and fire codes. And these have existed for some form for centuries. In the U.S., most states are are under some iteration of the International Building Code, which covers multifamily housing. Point access blocks are generally legal up to three stories with a number of conditions attached to that. There's a max number of stories, typically three, although in Seattle and New York, you can do up to six. There are other requirements maximizing the number of dwelling units per story. So you have no more than four homes 
uh, on each story per stairway. And this is actually relatively common in other countries as well. Uh, there are conditions around fire protection, utilization of automatic sprinklers, and additional regulations around travel distance and how units open up into the stairway. Seattle is this really kind of a special place where we've modified our building code to allow five and six story buildings that are point access blocks. It really has helped unlock some really difficult small lot urban development. And that's a wrap. To summarize today's podcast, there are three main means of egress for accessing units. There's the double loaded corridor, the single loaded corridor, and the point access block. The latter of the two can provide increased benefits around climate resilience, livability, and an improved quality of life. In today's show notes, I will provide links to some of the projects mentioned in today's podcast, and I will also be providing a link to the Large Lab report, Unlocking Livable, Resilient, Decarbonized Housing with Point Access Blocks, where you can find additional information on the benefits of these kinds of buildings. Thanks to our listeners for joining us on the Livable Low Carbon City podcast. We'll be back with another episode soon to broaden the discourse and highlight how we can co-create a low carbon urban future together. If you'd like to know more about what Larch Lab is doing, please subscribe to our monthly newsletter. I'll add the link to the episode notes.